Well, this wasn't really planned, uh, but the wife and I were out thrifting. I came across an Eckhart Tolle book. I was just going to take a picture. I was going to take a look maybe online. Uh, because of the number of copies it said it had sold, plus uh, he had done an updated introduction or something like that. So again, uh, everything I'd read from him was a much, much simpler. Uh, for me, uh, missing what I needed. Uh, I may have told this story before, but after many years of suffering, eventually my suffering got worse when uh, my health needed health care and doctors just tried everything, just uh, increased my suffering, not reduced it. Eventually, when I took uh, the reins, came the charioteer uh, using natural diet, you know, common sense, logic, and, uh, well, sometimes old world knowledge was able to reduce my own suffering. Now, during that process, uh, we were treating uh, symptoms such as, you know, anxiety and mood disorder, which is why so many people turn to meditation and mindfulness. I turned back to Buddhism because uh, I was reawakened to uh, what I had been studying and the benefits that I didn't realize um, I had been gaining. When I had been introduced to mindfulness-based um, cognitive therapy, there's a number of different mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. There's a number of different protocols that are using mindfulness or um, focus, awareness uh, to help heal people. But as I've said for a long time, and it didn't really strike me till very recently, I found it odd that uh, they were taking the proven benefits, sure, anecdotally, of Buddhism, meditation, I'm going to show it even goes back to Taoism and it even predates Taoism, to the Yijing, which then predates all of it, to classics uh, that are lost to the history of mankind. It also talks of, I'm going to get into that later, about um, uh, cultural influence uh, and just, you know, universal truths. So once again, rewind to Eckhart Tolle. Came across this book. I'm not terribly interested, but took a photo and it struck me that the wife might be interested. So here the wife is, is reading Eckhart Tolle because she finds possibly um, just what I found too stripped down might be easier for some to... Uh, I'm going to try to do a separate podcast that I maybe have come to realize... Um, some personal history that's uh, uh, allowed me to understand anatta and shunyata, not self and emptiness, a little bit uh, more easily than others possibly. Thus, uh, me reading directly sutras, um, simpler for me, uh, but with a clear natural understanding, it makes sense why uh, I wouldn't want a dumbed-down version 
or what I would call, again, labels, what I would call a dumbed-down version. So on that note, um, I've been listening, uh, encouraging the wife, hopefully, encouraging the wife uh, to, to, to access the concepts in uh, these, um, it's little meditations, as he likes to call it, little short little chapters, where he tries to put across uh, concepts to help people uh, who are suffering. So I don't blame them on that line. Uh, but what I thought would be fun was the wife and I, in combination, can explore for her uh, Eckhart Tolle and then maybe get a deeper understanding of Buddhism. And for me, from a lifelong uh, Chittamatran, I might get an understanding uh, from those, uh, as it's commonly uh referenced those who have a difficult time understanding that the ego itself can even be set aside, let alone sometimes the misunderstood concept of destroying one's ego or being free of its influence. Right? We're talking about awakening to the power of its influence, awakening to the power uh, that it has to delude us into believing uh, you know, an, an illusory reality uh, is uh, the truth, right? Arguably, um, I will quote once again uh, from the Dade Jing, and we'll talk about awareness, a focus, perception. But on that line, we're talking about the power of now. And what I enjoy about this particular passage, um, he's going to talk about awareness. So when he talks about the power of now, and living in the present um, is not dissimilar to um, emptiness, which I'm also going to read after the wife reads Eckhart Tolle. The idea is sati patana, which is a Pali word, which means to reside or to abide in mindfulness. But it also means to bring one's attention back to mindfulness. So, on that note, here is a section of The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. When you have had your first glimpses of the timeless state of consciousness, you begin to move back and forth between the dimensions of time and presence. First, you become aware of just how rarely your attention is truly in the now, but to know that you are not present is a great success. That knowing is presence, even if it initially only lasts for a couple of seconds of clock time before it is lost again. Then, with increasing frequency, you choose to have the focus of your consciousness in the present moment rather than in the past or future, and whenever you realize that you had lost the now, you are able to stay in it not just for a couple of seconds, but for longer periods. Okay, well... We're just going to carry on from that lovely rendition of The Power of Now. And I just wanted to point out um, the passage from the Tao Te Ching that we read uh, recently. And it mentioned non-being is called the beginning of heaven and earth. Being is called the mother of all things. Always passionless, thereby observe the subtle. Ever intent thereby observe the apparent. These two come from the same source, 
but differ in name. Both are considered mysteries. The mystery of mysteries is the gateway of marvels. Now, why do I mention that? Because when you go and look to the notes, which, of course, I didn't bother reading till after. When you go and look to the notes, let's just first, once again, to observe the subtle with constant dispassion means to keep the attention on emptiness. Right? And in the notes it mentions the above two aspects of awareness are mentioned. Formless intuition and discursive intellect. Both derive from an even profounder source. Both kinds of awareness are unfathomable mysteries if for no other reason than that they are themselves the means by which we access or assess or access, but it could have been either, but he says assess, <laughs> our experiences of them. And it is for the same reason that their source is by its own nature an even greater mystery. Gosh, trust me, you're not alone in thinking, what are you even talking about, Mr. Cleary? Right? I find it hilarious because I love my misspoken word of assess versus access because if we're going to use these awarenesses, or is it aware nigh? Yeah, if we were going to use our awarenesses to access these experiences, now this is going to be in a past tense. So you're not, not strictly assessing them, you're accessing them. But arguably, every experience will be in past tense because your eyes tells you what it sees, and your eyes are the most directly linked to the brain. Everything else is going to be even more after the fact. But what I want to bring our attention to is we're discussing awareness. Now, when he talks about both kinds of awareness being unfathomable mysteries, and, right? They both derive from an even profounder source. I would argue not so much. I would argue that it's our ego that attempts to, uh, to jade these simple truths. So once again, the above-mentioned two aspects of awareness, formless intuition and discursive intellect. Formless intuition. Okay, let's call this Brahman nature, right? Let's call it the Atman, right? That Tathagata Garbha, that store of Buddha nature, which is simply uh, a synonym for awareness, your ability to realize that our mind, our ego, is the source of our suffering, but at the same time, it is the source of our liberation. And he does go on and talk about those mysteries of mysteries, the gateway to marvels. I've talked about these extraordinary powers. Are they truly extraordinary? Or is it just they seem to us, once we've been um, swayed by our passions, they may seem like extraordinary powers to be able to stay dispassionate amongst any sort of hubbub. Kind of like Rudyard Kipling said, right? To keep your head uh, when all those among you uh, or around you are losing theirs. And he goes on and talks about the mystery of mysteries and the gateway of mar marvels. That Taoism uh, at the reality school uh, called these uh, mystery paths, the central switch post or opening between the rational and intuitive modes of awareness described in the earlier passage as an intentional ob observation of the apparent and dispassionate observation of the subtle. Taoist practice involves opening the mysterious paths to allow the mind to work in both modes. Yes. 
So that passage about uh, the mystery of mysteries and the gateway of marvels is talking about opening the mysterious pass, which allows the mind to work in both modes without interference. What is that mysterious pass? Well, Eckhart Tolle calls it the power of now. Um, uh, some Buddhism would call it um, samadhi, jhana, jnana, vishnana. Uh, Hinduism might call it moksha or uh, purusha, uh, simply awareness, focus. In this case, it talks about these uh, two modes of awareness, the rational and the intuitive modes. Well, rational could be your logistic, uh, your logistic, your logic, your uh, logical mind. And your intuitive, like I said earlier, could be that atman, that uh, piece of you that no matter what you do believe, has the ability to achieve that awareness, that liberation. Right? So not so difficult, not such a huge mystery. Right? Simply, very simply, that piece of us, a piece of us, that discernment that is able to tell the difference between right choice and wrong, being able to harness the mind, the ego, the self, to... Uh, to achieve the same uh, both liberation and cessation of ills and suffering, as we heard in the Heart Sutra. Now I'm going to go on, just again, to tie this together. It's quite a deep, dark um, hole if you were to look at uh, the history in China. So let's just say, uh, arguably, but it uh, wouldn't be much of an argument uh, against, uh, arguably the oldest surviving Tome, the oldest classic in Chinese history. And I'll go to the Yijing. I'll go to Hexagram 52. This book uh, was at once an oracle uh, used for divination guidance. Carl Jung considered it uh, a way to access your own self-conscious, possibly the collective unconscious. Uh, is that these two uh, awareness, awareness or awarenesses? Awarenesses is that these two awarenesses that we're talking about, um, your uh, subconscious, your consciousness, as Mr. Tolle likes to say. But let me just read from the hexagram 52. This happens to be one of the eight auspicious guas, being a double of uh, the uh, trigram jin for mountain. Interesting, the Norling. Chinese dialect for Jen actually means straightforward or forthright or blunt. Straightforward to the point. I like that. But the meaning of Jen is often translated by uh, Wilhelm, Wilhelm as keeping still, mountain. Blofeld translated, uh, translated as desisting, stillness. Right? Um, I believe Cleary translates it as uh, stillness, mountain or keeping still mountain, similar to Wilhelm. The sequence of the Gua is stated that events cannot continue in motion without stopping. They must take a rest. Thus, after taking action, keeping still follows. The reason why I mention that is, this is interesting, because I will quote this later from uh, The Essential Tao by Thomas Cleary. 
he talks about that Buddhism came into China in waves, fits and flurries. But I find this interesting. You're going to see um, uh, synergy here between the philosophy of early, arguably prehistory China and India. Because when we're looking at this cyclical flow of events, that's exactly how the hexagrams and the trigrams flow within the Yijing. That uh, as a Yi line ages, it will transform into a Yang. And as a Yang ages, or as its energy reaches an apex, it will actually transform. Right? So this is all a cycle. Absolutely uh, not at all dissimilar to the Hindu tradition, but I just want to read a section of the Yijing. From the very beginning of Chinese culture, ancient sages emphasized keeping still. Keeping still is not uh, keeping merely the body still, but the mind and spirit as well. Could it be those different awareness? Awarenesses? Keeping still is also called sitting in stillness understand how a simple translation sitting resting same character mistranslation as must be sitting versus rest the mind what could also be translated as nourishing the spirit nothing in that tells us we must sit or stand in a certain way while sitting still in a lotus posture one is shaped like a mountain so not the only uh, path to stillness but certainly the most iconic. Sitting in stillness, uh, the text goes on, or in meditation, as Westerners call it, is a self-disciplinary training. So let's not fixate on the word sitting. Let's not even fixate on the word meditation. Let's talk about bringing, fixing, returning one's attention back to the present. Right? And the text goes on. While doing this, one is able to control the mind and the breath to be introspective about one's shortcoming, shortcomings to cultivate inner strength and virtue. I find it very funny. Once again, you're seeing some synergy. Now, you must understand that qi is used synonymously for energy and breath. So it's not um, ridiculous that they would uh, use in English, they would say mind and breath. Uh, but I also find it interesting that we can go back to prana in Sanskrit or Pali, prana in Pali, which can mean breath and energy, but not as a separate thing. That breath itself is kind of like a mana pump. It is the pump for that energy. It is the pump for the breath, right? But it goes on. And says, while doing this, one is able to control the mind and the breath to be introspective about one's shortcomings. Could that be insight? And to cultivate inner strength and virtue. So we have shamatha, calmness, and vipassana, insight, when it's predating the supposed uh, transmission of the Indian teachings into Asia by hundreds of years, maybe even a millennia or more. And it goes on to say that Mencius, who was um, a contemporary of Confucius uh, and maybe even a teacher of uh, Master Lao, Atsu, I am skillful in nourishing my imperishable 
noble spirit. So again, this imperishable noble spirit, is it this entity, this, this being? No, no. Again, just like I've said before, when I worship or venerate the Lord of Compassion, I'm venerating, I am worshiping uh, compassion, not the Lord. So in this case, when we're talking about this noble spirit, an imperishable noble spirit, we're not talking about a soul that transmutes from one existence to another. Arguably, our energy itself is transformed from, from maybe not moment to moment, but certainly from day upon day. And the passage goes on and says, This is the highest stage of non-attachment. In such a stage, there is no fault in one's being. If you notice, once again, non-attachment, right? Dispassionless um, non-attachment. Again, all of these works are using the identical, identical words, attempting to transmit identical messages. And the text goes on and says, In such a state there is no fault in one's being. Again, as Mr. Tolle said, once you bring yourself uh, to become aware that you're no longer being present. So, <laughs> it's, a, it's a mixed bag because it's simply when you become aware that you're not aware, you're aware. And the text goes on and says, It is believed that when heaven is about to confer a great mission on a person, it first exercises his or her mind and spirit with discipline. Keeping still is meant to prepare one's mind and spirit to progress when the time comes. Well, let's double fold. Let's look at this one here. One, heaven's going to confer a great mission on a person. It first exercises his or her mind and spirit with discipline. Well, focus is important, but you can look at Mr. Tolle, who actually says, and the Dalai Lama teaches us that some of the greatest lessons are learned in some of the darkest times as was my reading uh, from the Yijing today, was um, we are tested when it, time is darkest because that's when, um, like I said, uh, next to the crane, the phoenix is one of the most um, uh, venerated birds, uh, mainly because of its ability to rise like the lotus or the lily, from the mud, the muck, untainted, untarnished. Same as the phoenix. Phoenix can rise this magical, mystical creature from the ashes of what was before. Born of the darkness. Right? And finally, I was actually going to read a passage from a book that, I, again, I've mentioned before that I recently acquired. It's called Unlimiting Mind, The Radically Experiential Psychology of Buddhism. I find this interesting, Unlimiting the Mind. Once again, we're going right back to those awarenesses. See, I got it now, right? You're with me here. I got it. I learn. In this book, I've read different passages talking about interdependence. Again, that's been left on the back burner a bit because um, the self is a much more important concept to understand before you can understand interdependence of everything. If you don't understand 
Um, as I said, I'm working on how the self relates to interdependence, right? It's not unrelated to what I'm talking about here because it's awareness. That is how the self relates to interdependence. And that's how interdependence relates to the self. Jesus, jeez, jeez. Did I just eliminate the need for uh, that podcast that I was going to do on, yeah, the uh, interdependence of self and dependent origination? I mean, something like that I was thinking would be a good piece. But what I was getting to was unlimiting the mind and how it relates to everything we've been discussing. Uh, but I might do that on the next segment. Ah, well, here we go. So as I said, Unlimiting Mind by Andrew Olensky. And what he does is he seems to have used passages from uh, some of the early polycanon, the, the words that we can most attribute directly to uh, the booty. Uh, the Buddha, uh, the Buddha. I apologize. I'm learning Pali. I was doing a little play on uh, the Pali grammar, but the awakened one. And he tells a story of an acrobat spinning plates. We've heard this uh, allegory, or is it a metaphor? A simile? Neither here nor there. I use that too much, but. The idea is keeping things in balance, keeping things spinning. It is awareness, right? This is why, and I'm going to get to this, this is why I often, arguably incessantly, refer to some of the early uh, sutras on mindfulness. So that would be the Anapanasati or the Satipatthana sutras. The Anapanasati is mindfulness of breath. Why? It's great for um, a beginner. Because just like Mr. Tolle said, when you bring your awareness to your breath, you have brought yourself to present. You brought yourself to present, you've brought yourself to awareness. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's far too simple for a lot of us, but it is as simple as that. So pranayama is good, both in the Indian and the Chinese Asian tradition, for health. It is good for focus. It is good for energy manipulation and all this. But going back, it powered the body. Therefore, it powered our practice. Practice being yoga, yoga being our endeavor, our endeavor being um, seeking to reside or abide in this awareness, this mindfulness. And so I'll go on. And after Buddha tells the story in the Satipatthana that everybody's responsible for their own awareness... Right? He illustrates the practice of mindfulness meditation, meditation with the image of this perilous balancing act. On many levels, it helps us understand what he was pointing to. The physical sense of balance is so immediate, so intimate, and so accessible that in every moment of experience, it is often the first thing one gets in touch with when sitting down to meditate. The story derives much of its strength from this fact, right? As I've said before, in this case, we're balancing on a tall bamboo pole is the idea. And nobody else, 
Nobody else can be in charge of your focus, your balance, your awareness when you're up on that pole. You alone. So that's why it goes on and talks about when sitting down. So that's a twofold realization there. One, we sit because it, it allows us to get in touch with that awareness, that focus, that naturally, right? Trying to stay in proper posture, trying to be, breathe correctly and at a rhythm, not too deep, not too shallow, not too fast, not too slow, not to focus too much or too little. As we've heard over and over again, that focus is not to be found in the present, but by bringing our focus to the present, that allows us to quieten the mind's stillness and allows us possibly that moment where that mind quiets enough that we're able to experience reality firsthand, as close as we can. It's that awareness, right? We're so used to projecting our attention out into the world around us. It is a noticeable shift when we face inward and feel the subtle swaying of the head on the shoulders along with the muscular micro-compensations keeping our body centered in gravity. Like the acrobat, like the meditator, it is bringing our conscious awareness to a process that is always occurring but generally overlooked. That which is the vital first step to learning anything valuable about ourselves. It's realizing that those two kinds of awareness that both are dispassionate observation and our earnest intention, our intent, flow from the same source, that our suffering and the source of our liberation also flow from the same source. The story vividly demonstrates why it is so important to attend to the quality of one's own inner life before critiquing what others are doing. It's just not possible to keep someone else's balance. It takes this graphic image to drive home such an obvious truth. Right? I love that, how it finishes, and that's where we'll leave it. That um, what it's trying to teach us that we so often externalize ourselves and simply by bringing our attention back to how often we externalize ourselves or how often we identify with ourselves or how often we allow ourselves uh, to influence our decisions, our thinking, our feeling, our, our, our choices, therefore our action and our outcomes. It's simply a simple that was a tough one. It is as simple as becoming aware. That's why we talk about awakening to these simple truths. That's why we talk about cultivating, because it exists within us. It's simply, as we opened this, uh, this episode with, it's simply becoming aware of one's lack of focus. That is bringing oneself to bear, 